Hey, a quick message for those of you who are listening to this episode on Spotify. I have a small favor to ask. Spotify now allows mobile users to rate podcasts. I would really appreciate it if you can take a quick pause to go to the Techly Journal podcast page and leave your favorite show, your best rating, on Spotify. It will help me a lot to get this podcast to reach more people on the platform. Thanks a lot. Today's clip is from Techly Journal episode 102 with Marty Kagan, the founder of the Silicon Valley product group and the author of Inspired and Empowered. In this clip, Marty explained the importance of building the right product and shared the two inconvenient truths about building products. Marty then elaborated on the traits a good product team has and how to create an empowered product team. So Marty, I think because of your history, right, working with products, including experiencing failed products, I think that led you to writing these two books, right? It started by Inspired and followed by Empowered. Inspired subtitle is how to create tech products customers love. And for Empowered, it's like ordinary people, extraordinary products. So from these two themes, it seems like product is the main theme, including customers and also the people working on the product. So tell us more maybe why you had the idea to write these two books and what kind of problems you want to solve with these two books. Yes. And you're making a good point too. My whole world has always been products, either building products, designing products, product managing products, but always products. I've never actually been interested in custom software solutions. So like what Accenture does. Accenture has a fantastic business, but I have no interest in that business. I'm interested in creating a single product that millions of people want to use, not create one product for one company. So that's the difference. And there's nothing wrong with custom solutions. It's just my interest is in commercial products, building real products. I'm interested in everything about products, though, whether it's the engineering or the design or the data or the user research. Anything about products is interesting to me. So what happened was after I left eBay and I started talking to friends, companies in other places, I started realizing that there was a big difference between how the best companies created software products and how most companies were creating products. I was confused by that. I didn't really understand why wouldn't they want to work like the most valuable companies in the world. Why wouldn't they want to work like Amazon or like Google or like Apple? I didn't understand why they wouldn't. So I talked to a lot more of them and I realized that for the most part, they didn't know how. Nobody had ever taught them. They had managers that never worked at those companies, so they didn't know how. So I realized there was a need to share the techniques that good companies use. In both of my books, there's nothing in there that I invented or my partners invented. It's all things we find at good companies. All I'm really doing is sharing that, look, all the good companies seem to do this. They call it different things sometimes. One company will call it product discovery. Another one will call it fake it before you make it. Another one will call it build things that don't scale, then build things that do scale. But they're all describing the same thing. So I realized we needed to share that. And so that's what inspired was to share the techniques of good product teams especially how does a good product team figure out what to build? There's already a lot of books, many books on how to build the product. In other words, how do you get consistent, reliable releases? How do you do continuous integration, continuous build, continuous deployment? There's lots of books on that. 
by the way, if I find a company that doesn't do that, I'm like, you have to do this. This is critical. But even more critical is making sure you're building something worth building. So I'm interested in that side. And that's what Inspired is. I did two editions of Inspired. The first edition was really just for my little bubble in Silicon Valley sharing with friends. But the second edition, a bigger publisher took it and took it all over the world. And so I heard from a lot more people in places all over the world that I far beyond Silicon Valley. And one of the things they told me is that they love this. They want to work this way, but their managers won't let them. <laughs> and so I realized that it wasn't enough to share the practices of the teams, that we also needed to share the practices of the leaders. And the practices of the leaders are even more different than the practices of the team. So the book Empowered came out to be even a longer book than Inspired. In truth, the techniques are harder. The things I talk about in Inspired, I don't think they're very complicated. They're more fun than anything else. They're fun techniques. But in Empowered, when you talk about what a good engineering leader does or what a good design leader does, that's hard. Those are hard topics. Those are not topics for 10 minutes on a whiteboard, you're all done. It's hard. So that was the motivation for the book Empowered. That's really my books. And then I have a partner that just turned out a marketing book for product marketing people. And I have another partner working on a book about big company transformation. That's another hard problem for sure. Those two books are titled Loved and Transform. I think some of it are not published yet. Marty, you mentioned that you have seen it, right? How the best companies build products versus most of us who probably had very little knowledge about how to build products properly. I think also coming from your experience last time in HP Labs building that AI workstation. So you mentioned in the book that it doesn't matter how good your engineering team is, how sophisticated the technology, if they are not given something worthwhile to build. I think this is something really important that maybe we can dive a little bit deeper. Why do you think that building the right product actually matters first, regardless of other techniques? Well, just common sense that if software is garbage in, garbage out, <laughs> if the product backlog is full of nonsense, then what do you expect will be shipped? That's what happens in so many product teams. The things that they're asked to build make no sense. They're feature chasing or they're just doing what different parts of the business are asking them to do. There's nobody really looking at what is the real problem for the customer and how do we come up with a solution that's technically possible, but also works for the business and also the customer would love. That's a much harder assignment, much harder work, but that's really what good products have always been about. And you mentioned there's this concept, two inconvenient truths about product. When I read it, actually, it's very insightful. Can you tell us what these two inconvenient truths are? And I think the reason I use the term, the two inconvenient troops, because in most companies that aren't very good, the biggest problem, the source of a lot of their problems is really the product roadmap. From the engineering point of view, the roadmap is just, these are the features they want us to build. The problem is we have decades of data now that show that most of the items on those roadmaps are not going to deliver any results. I mean, realistically, between 10 and 20% of the things on a roadmap for most companies actually produce a return where they actually provide the benefit the company was hoping. 80%, 90%, whatever it is, wasted. So why is that? That's what led to the two inconvenient truths. 
The first inconvenient truth is that we know at least half the ideas on that roadmap is just never going to work. We just know that. Now, it might fail because the customers don't want it. That happens a lot. Our CEO wants it, but our customers don't want it. So that happens all the time. Another problem is that they do want it, but it's so poorly designed, it's too complicated. They can't figure out how to use it. And sometimes they never even get to see it because it turns out to be much harder to build than was originally anticipated. The two sprints turns into 20 sprints and eventually people say, forget it, it's not worth it. So these are reasons why most of the items on the roadmap are not worth building. And then the other inconvenient truth is, let's say you have a good thing on the roadmap, something that really is, people really do want it. It turns out in order to get that to the point where it really makes money, it takes several iterations. Usually it takes three, four, five iterations until it's profitable. Basically, we say in product that it's not so much about time to market, it's about time to money, time to actually delivering whatever the value is. And that usually takes several iterations. So if you just think about your typical company with quarterly roadmaps <laughs> that they fight about at the beginning of every quarter, and they have all these features and projects that they dump on the teams and say, build them, only a small percentage of those things actually might work. And then a small percentage of those get the several iterations they need to make money. So this is what I mean by so many companies are so bad at product. They don't understand those two inconvenient truths. That leads to most of the waste in a typical company. So you brought up an interesting point about product roadmaps. I think still many companies, if not most companies, are still doing product roadmaps, either yearly, quarterly, or at least every sprint, there's some kind of a, they call it product vision or product goal. What do they want? So if you are saying that the first inconvenient truth that at least half of those products from the product roadmaps will be wasted, is there a better way how to execute this kind of a plan to build the products? Oh, absolutely. And this is what good companies do is they know the difference. And the truth is a product roadmap does not have to be the disaster that it usually is. The key is this. When do you put an item on the roadmap? Do you put it on the item before you've done any product discovery or after? If you put it before, the problem is you don't know. You just have these hopes that it's going to make all this money, but you don't know if it's going to make any money and you don't know how much it's going to cost to build. On the other hand, if you do product discovery, and I haven't really defined that, but in general, what that means is we have to make sure our solutions are valuable, usable, feasible, and viable. We do that with a lot of quick prototyping and quick testing. So that's how we do that. Now, if you do that first for the ideas that work, you put those on the product roadmap, that's fine. Then it's just a communication tool. And you mentioned also another aspect of the product, so-called the product roadmap. You should not aspire to just build features on top of features, but you also should focus more on the outcome. People that's usually call this output versus outcome. So tell us more about that. That's right. That's another difference. When we talk about good product teams, there's really four things that matter. I've hinted a couple of them so far, but we should just get these on the table because the truth is it doesn't really matter what process the team is using. It doesn't matter if they're using Kanban, if they're using Scrum. 
really doesn't matter. And as you probably know, a lot of the best teams don't use any of those. So it's not important. What matters are these four things. First of all, is the team given a problem to solve instead of a feature to build? We want to give the team problems to solve. They can be customer problems. They can be our company's problems, but they're problems to solve, not features to build. Second is, are they addressing the risks, value, usability, feasibility, and viability before they have their engineers build something, or are they addressing that after or never? So that's the second thing. The third is, how do they actually solve problems? If they think the way you solve a problem is somebody with a title product manager defines requirements and gives it to a designer who's supposed to do workflows and who's then gives it at sprint planning to the engineers, that's waterfall. Even though I just said sprint planning, that is literally waterfall. So instead, what we want is product management, product design, engineering to come up with that solution side by side collaboratively. In fact, this is the little secret in product. Consistently, the best single source of innovation is not our product managers, is not our customers, is not our executives. It's the engineers because the engineers are working with the enabling technology every single day. They're in the best position to see what's just now possible. And so the point is great product ideas come from them. Let me just make this very explicit, Henry. If the first time the engineers or the tech lead even sees a product idea is at sprint planning, that is a bad product team. Okay, they should have seen the idea way before that from the beginning of the idea. Anyway, that's the third. The fourth one is what you brought up, outcomes. Good product teams measure themselves against outcomes, not output. In other words, good teams ship every day, multiple times a day with continuous deployment. What matters is not shipping a feature. What matters is achieving that outcome. Whatever that problem we were trying to solve, did we solve it? So I think the point where you mentioned that engineering should be involved even earlier, they should not be involved only during sprint planning or maybe backlog grooming. That is probably too late. And you mentioned in the book that if your engineers are used just to produce code, they actually bring half a value. I think that's a very insightful thought because all along, I think in many companies as well, engineers, maybe they also treat themselves like, oh, I just want to code. I don't want to involve in this product discovery or product management. But actually, the best companies would involve these technical people early in the process. In fact, I mean, literally at the best companies, they consider the single most important thing are engineers doing more than just coding. They refer to it as this notion of an empowered engineer, an engineer that cares just as much about what they build as how they build it. So that is a huge difference between good companies and the rest. In a lot of Silicon Valley, the way they talk about this is they'll say, do you have teams of missionaries or teams of mercenaries? Mercenaries basically build whatever they're told to. They don't care. If you tell them to build the stupidest feature in the world, they will build the stupidest feature in the world. They don't care. They don't care. They're like, just pay me. I'm fine. And in fact, in a lot of those companies, they're not even employees. They're outsourced. So no, in a good company, they would never do that. In fact, when they interview for engineers, they're trying to see that they're not like that, that they really care about what they build. You know, in a good product team, in a good product company, the engineers don't have to build what the product manager says. If they don't agree, they don't build it. 
Wow. So I think that's very interesting findings. Engineers also have a say what to build or what not to build. I think that's really key. So you mentioned these key words about empowered. I think that's the title of the second book, Empowered Teams. What are some of these attributes of empowered teams? So maybe if you can explain what does the term mean? Because so many teams also, they feel like they are empowered. They can do whatever they want. That may be one interpretation of empowered, yeah. but maybe there's something else. No, that's a fair question because there are different interpretations. The most common concept that it's confused with is another important concept, which is referred to as an autonomous team. So there's autonomous teams and there are empowered teams. And some teams are empowered and autonomous. <laughs> but the difference is an empowered team is given a problem to solve, so they don't get to pick what they work on. That's uh, fantasy land. <laughs> because imagine having all these different teams and all these different engineers, and they all pick whatever they want to work on. Nobody would get anything done for our customers. So they don't get to pick what to work on. But what an empowered team means is that they get to figure out the best way to solve that problem. So instead of being given a roadmap of features that say, we want you to put this payment method, we want you to do all this, they instead say, here's the problem, you figure it out. Here's the problem, you figure it out. That is what's meant by an empowered team. An autonomous team means you have everything in your team you need in order to make the changes you need to make. So if you need to build something that requires certain skill set, you have that skill set. Now. In truth, most good companies have empowered teams, but only partially autonomous. In other words, it's very hard to have full autonomy in most companies because there are so many interdependencies. There are all these platform teams that we depend on. And so it's not about full autonomy. It's about maximizing autonomy. I hope you enjoyed this short clip from Techly Journal Favorite Playlist. If you find this episode useful, please help share it with your friends and colleagues who you think would also benefit from listening to this episode. And if you want to listen more from this conversation, please go back and listen to the original full conversation with my guest. Stay tuned for the next Tech Lead Journal episode, and until then, goodbye.